Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Our connection with nature cannot be healed. Our connection with our kin in the more than human world, our connection with other humans, our culture, like none of those things can be healed unless we're willing to heal ourselves. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. doing good morning emma really well here it's getting into the peak of fall really really one of my favorite times of the year late october Ooh, late october for some reason the weather this time of year usually typically is just kind of perfect you know you never know exactly what's going to happen there could be a hurricane or some other huge weather event but most of the time This time of year is just beautiful blue sky, perfect temperature, beautiful colors where we live, and just delightful. So yeah, and I like this time too. It's like peak bonfire in the backyard time. So nice. It's legitimately chilly. It's legitimately chilly, but not like too cold to be outside. Sometimes we try to do the bonfire thing when it's just like actually too cold. Yeah, like New Year's Eve with a bonfire. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so I'm going to ask you a question and... Try to not connect it to, it's obviously connected to our guest today, but I wanted to chat a little bit before we get into the full intro. But when you hear the words mirrors in the earth, what do you think of? Mirrors in the earth. Gosh. So not thinking about our guest and her book. I think the first thing that would come to my mind would be a clear pool. Obviously something where you look and you see a reflection. That's what first pops into my mind. Yeah. I just think it's such a powerful phrase and image. I think about a lot of things like the water comes to my mind first, but also it's the idea that we mirrors in the earth, like we are in the earth, like as if I'm looking into a mirror and like what I see in a mirror and then making that the earth. And I just think that's a really powerful idea and one that we talk about often on here, very poetic way of saying it. And it is reflective of the book and this conversation that we're having today. So I don't know if you wanted to to chat about anything else in your own personal experience with that before we introduce Asia. Well, yes, as you said, the metaphorical implications of that are very powerful because we look around us and we see life. And I think it's probably unique to each of us as individuals to see and feel how we see ourselves reflected in that. So I think it's certainly a very 
rich and nuanced subject to think about and talk about. Yeah, it's beautiful. And as is our conversation today. So if you are excited by this conversation and whether or not you've heard of Asia Suler before, this is your first time with her, you'll be happy to know that we read this book as our Almanac Book Club pick this season. And so this is super fun for our community to have this interview coming out now. If you're interested in books like this and talking to folks who love reading about these kinds of things in community and discussing them, then you'd probably like the Almanac Book Club. More information about that is in our show notes and we'd love to have you join us. But it's been several times now that we've been able to get the author of our Almanac Book Club book on The Good Dirt, which is such a thrill. So finally, introducing Asia Suler, author of Mirrors in the Earth, Reflections on Self-Healing from the Living World. It's a book of 12 essays on the earth healing powers of self-compassion and empathy. Asia Suler is a writer, teacher, mother, earth intuitive, and ecological philosopher who lives in the folds of the Blue Ridge Mountains. She's the founder of One Willow Apothecaries, an Appalachian-grown company that offers handcrafted herbal medicines and educational experiences in herbalism, animism, ancestral healing, and earth-centered personal growth. Asia has guided over 20,000 students in 70-plus countries through her immersive online programs. With her writings and teachings, Asia helps people embrace their own unique medicine through a joyful engagement with the natural world. Asia teaches us that connecting with the earth can change everything. Her own journey, marked by early years of chronic pain and illness, led her to the altar of the green world and the deep knowing that everything is medicine. She's here to tell us about her story and her work and her journey to the peaceful, creative, and deeply fulfilling life she's created by living in alignment with the earth. So here's Asia Suler, author of Mirrors in the Earth, Reflections on Self-Healing from the Living World. Asia Suler. I'm a, a writer, author, earth intuitive, herbalist, and teacher. And a lot of my work is in the realm of helping people to recognize the gifts that they carry, the gifts that they're here to bring to this world through a joyful engagement with the living world. And I was really brought to this work in my late teens, when I was diagnosed with a chronic pain condition called vulvodynia. And I often say that the world inside of my body was so uncomfortable that I started going outside. And it was really where I found my solace, my safe space, the place where I felt most at peace, most held, most seen. It's where I felt the most hope. And it was where I started to begin to understand that I carry a gift for this world, that my presence on this planet wasn't an accident, that everything I had been through in my life, including the cycles of chronic pain and, and chronic illness that would come to define big parts of my journey, they were all a part of what I was being asked to step into within myself, of what I was being asked to give as my gifts in this world. And so it was really, for me, this direct apprenticeship with sitting with the trees and sitting by the creek and bringing kind of the weight of my world into the living world and 
just seeing how magnificently I was held, that it all really began for me. From there, I just decided whatever I was going to do, I wanted it to be involved with plants and nature and just the more than human world. And so when I graduated from college, I moved to New York City and I became a, became a plant technician, which really just means I took care of people's office plants and started gardening in my backyard in Brooklyn. And one day I woke up and thought, I'm going to go to school to become an herbalist. And I think I like thought I knew what that meant, but I actually had no idea, which is very sweet looking back. I had I had no idea. I'd never met another herbalist before. I'd never made any herbal preparation, but I applied to an herbal school in the Blue Ridge Mountains outside of Asheville, North Carolina, and got accepted. And that is really when I began my journey of studying herbalism. And so my background is mostly in in Western herbalism. The reason why I went to school was because I knew that I wanted to incorporate working with plants on a physical level into this work that I was already doing, which was really more of a, a psycho-spiritual, emotional connection with the living world. And I thought, I want to be able to work with plants and take them internally and help other people with that too. And so I'm going to go to school to learn these things. And yeah, I would say from there, pretty much the plants just had their own journey <laughs> for me. And I went through you know a lot of different iterations of, of study and scholarship over the years. And since that time, I think it's been something like 12 or 13 years since I graduated from school. And when I graduated from school, I started my business, One Willow Apothecaries, which in the beginning was very much just a apothecary business. And it evolved over time into what it is now today and what it is that I'm really doing today, which is more of this alchemal workshop for classes and learning and experiences in this realm of connecting with nature for the purpose of understanding our purpose of connecting to our own growth and development and the really primary connection that the earth wants to help you remember who you are and why you came here because you have something very essential to bring to the whole. That's so beautiful. Thank you. Tell us a little more about One Willow Apothecary. It, do you have like a brick and mortar store? Is it an online thing? And is it primarily classes, workshops, or is it all of it? At this point in time, One Willow Apothecaries is all online. And so when I began, we had a whole line of different kinds of herbal products. And now I just sell flower essences. It is the medicine that has resonated the most with me. And it's really been what has helped me the most of any herbal medicine that I've worked with. And so we sell flower essences as our sort of apothecary products, but some of those flower essences are also bundled with courses that we have. And then we also have courses sort of outside of the realm of flower essences and all different varieties and, and topics of really having to do with like living this life of being dedicated to personal development through engaging with the living world. Now, it's really interesting that you've zeroed in on flower essences because that's a whole interesting topic in itself. So for some of our listeners that are not familiar with that. Can you tell us a little bit about that and the story behind those? Sure. So flower essence is the practice that we know of today was developed by Dr. Edward Bach in the early part of the 1900s. And I say that with a caveat and the caveat is that people have been using flowers as 
emotional and energetic medicine since time immemorial. The practice of making flower essences as we know it now often looks something like this. You take a flower at the height of its bloom and place it in normally some sort of bowl of water or vessel of water and you set the flower in the water out under the sunlight with the intention that the flower's energetic signature actually goes into and shifts and changes the water. And then you are taking that water in drop dosage. So it's kind of a bit like homeopathics, but the process is different if anyone's familiar with homeopathics, but the concept that a highly dilute substance actually has the ability to work with the very subtle systems within our body. And what I liken it to is like when something's so deep inside of your body, it's almost like it's under lock and key. You need something that's small enough that can go through the keyhole. It's like you can throw the beach ball at it, but it's just going to bounce off. You need something that's small enough to go through that keyhole and unlock what is there. And what flower essences work really well for are psycho-emotional states, inner blockages, and it's really like the spiritual side of life. So this concept of unfolding. And Dr. Edward Bach was immunologist by trade. So he had studied vaccines, had helped develop a lot of these vaccines. And he really shifted gears when he contracted cancer and was told he only had a few months to live. And he started experimenting with these other forms of medicine. And so for him, it began with collecting dew off flowers first thing in the morning and drinking that dew. And eventually he found he could replicate the process through this experience of placing the flowers in water underneath the sunlight. And what was amazing is what he found that different flowers have different personalities. They have different energetics. I mean, you can feel this innately when you're with a sunflower versus with a rose. Like it just feels different, right? And we give flowers for different reasons at different times in life to different people. So we're already tuned into this. But for us, flowers carry these specific energetic signatures that can help us with certain themes in our life. So sunflower is really good at helping you with confidence, right? Rose is really good at helping you to open your heart up again after there's been trauma or loss. So the personalities of these plants can come through in this preparation and can help you open up. And what I like to say about flower essences, because people will ask me, you know, why flowers? If you can make, if everything in life in this planet has an energetic signature, couldn't you make an essence from anything? And we've seen with the work of researchers like Dr. Masara Emoto that water has the ability to take on the energetic signature of what it's exposed to, whether it's, you know, whether it's a plant, whether it's words, whether it's music. So why flowers? Well, flowers are the penultimate expression of a flowering plant fulfilling its purpose. When a flowering plant comes into blossom, it is living out the fullness of the blueprint that it came into this lifetime with. And so this is why we work with flowers in essences, because what they do is they help us see, recognize, and dissolve the inner blocks that we've had that have prevented us from living the fullness of the blueprint that we came into this lifetime with. And we all know what that feeling feels like of like, I know that there's more that I'm currently experiencing, that I'm currently able to create, than I'm currently embodying. And so flower essences help us to dissolve the unconscious blocks that we've erected to really just fulfilling that blueprint of who we are and flowering in this life. Can you give us an example of flower essence and, and what its properties are and what it does or what we might expect from it? Sure. Yeah. So gosh, there's so many different flower essences that one could work with, but I'll talk about one that is one that people are very familiar with, at least the flower. So violet is a flower essence that I love. And 
you know, we have a lot in our culture around violets already, like the concept of the shrinking violet, for example, right? Like the person who's shy, the person who's demure. It's like violets, if you actually get down on your knees and you look at them, they're stunning flowers. I mean, they're just absolutely gorgeous, even though they grow really close to the ground and have a really interesting Doctrine of Signatures. Doctrine of Signatures is this concept that the way a plant grows, how it grows, where it grows, its structure can tell you something about its medicine. So not just energetic medicine, but also physical medicine, how it works inside of our body systems. Well, Violet has a really interesting Doctrine of Signature where it has this beautiful, often purple flower, but sometimes yellow, sometimes multiple colors in the spring. And then it has this hidden flower right beneath the, the surface of the soil in the fall. And it's sort of this like white, extremely demure flower that comes like hidden in the second part of the season. And what I found for Violet and what I've, I've seen because I've now worked with thousands of people who've worked with Violet is that it really helps you to embrace the positive side of this archetype of the shrinking Violet of being in a time of your life where it's okay to be behind the scenes, where it's okay to embrace your aloneness, like the sweetness of that, the sweetness of these times we have in our life where things are quieter, where it's about the inward focus, the contemplation, the silence. And, you know, I really fell in love with violets when I first moved down to these mountains and the place where I ended up living I arrived there in very early spring and within a few weeks, the entire hillside, like half an acre behind the house was just covered in violet flowers. And at the time I had left behind my job, my friend network, my partner of five years and started completely new in this place where I didn't know anybody and I didn't really know anything about the town even or the mountains. And, and I felt very alone often. And I remember being so drawn to these flowers and not totally understanding it. And first, before I looked up what anyone had to say about them, I just worked with them myself. And it was very much something I picked up on that these flowers were helping me to embrace the sweetness and the contentment of of this time of, of inward turning. And then I looked it up and a lot of people have had similar experiences with violets. But I, I bring up this story in part because a lot of people will ask me, you know, what does this flower mean? <laughs> it's a little bit like asking like, okay, well, tell me what this person is all about. Like, okay, people are complex, you know, plants are complex, plants are complex. So, you know, what you pick up on when you take a medicine, whether it's a tincture or a flower essence or something else, like what you pick up on and what you experience is important because even in my training as a clinical herbalist, you know, I learned different medicines work differently in different bodies and different systems. And so the same will be true for something like a flower essence. So, to trust your instinct, to trust what you experience and to know what you experience or what you pick up on is important information. It's something that we need people to really do this research of being in their own experience, because especially in the Western world, and for those of us who are of European descent in particular, you know, there's been a lot that's been lost in terms of the collective body of wisdom around medicine, around herbalism, around forms and methods and ways of healing. And so you're adding to the book of knowledge when you're willing to have your own experience of something and bring the wisdom of that experience into the world. You know, and violets are something that in like conventional, I would say, landscaping circles is a plant that is seen as a weed and that people will take out because there's too many of them. And I know personally, two or three years ago, I discovered that I really liked the way they covered the ground and they were so pretty in the 
spring, but then when the flower went away, you had this nice little green bunch. And so I just started, you know, just letting them be whatever. And now they're all over the place. I have so many of them and I just love them. So for me, they've been a way to beautify my space with no effort. <laughs> right. Yeah. And they're, they are medicinal on a physical level as well. They are edible. They are native species. Certain violets are native species. And so, yeah, there's a lot to recommend violets and leaving them in your garden. <laughs> I wonder why they got the reputation of being a weed or something that needed to be taken out. I don't understand that. But anyway, there are a lot of things like that, actually. <laughs> Because they're prolific, yeah, like I assume. People yeah. think, oh, that's too many. I want I want something else here. But anyway. So Asia, where are you from initially? And I'm interested in going back to your story. You had this experience of finding how much being in nature and outside was really healing and helpful for you. And then you moved to New York City, which I think is so interesting. So tell me a little bit about that, like where you're from and how you ended up in, in New York City. And I guess I know now how you're back in Western North Carolina, but I'm really interested in your journey with like place and how you're tied to place. I grew up in Pennsylvania outside Philadelphia. So kind of on the edge of where the suburbs end and farm country began. So it was an interesting place to grow up for that reason. And a lot has changed since, you know, even when I was born, I think I lived in the first development that was ever built in the area. And now it's full of development. So yeah, a lot has shifted and changed. I wouldn't describe myself as a nature child, you know, like some people's stories of coming to whatever it is, gardening or herbalism or, you know, just working with nature, they'll say, oh, you know, I always loved nature. But I think as a child, you know, I grew up, like I said, in a development and we had like a green area behind the row of, you know, double houses that the kids would play in and stuff. But, you know, I didn't really have access to a lot of nature. And so while I found it like interesting, it was almost as if that gateway was just like waiting for me, like it didn't fully open until later. And I, you know, I also, I grew up in an environment, you know, sandwiched between Philadelphia and New York, where there was a heavy emphasis on kind of intellectual rationalism is how I would call it. And so from a very young age, I wanted to be seen as smart. I wanted to be seen as intelligent as with it. And so I kind of shelved the part of me that, you know, believed in magic or believed in fairies or would talk to the willow tree in my backyard. You know, I put that part of me on a shelf because I wanted to be seen a certain way. And so it really wasn't until I was in college north of New York City in the Hudson Valley that having the experience of being diagnosed with a chronic pain condition, it cracked open my world. And it was almost like the cost of living this half self was just so much higher than the risk of being the fullness of who I am, which includes someone who talks to trees <laughs> and, you know, believes in magic and, and believes in the healing of the unseen world. And, you know, I would also be remiss if I didn't mention that, at, you know, at the time, I was very lucky at the the college that I was attending that there was a brand new Native American studies program being piloted by a professor named Molly McGlennon. And I was, you know, one of the first students to move through that program. And so at the time, I was also reading all these contemporary Native thinkers and philosophers and poets and authors. And so I was getting this feedback that what I was experiencing wasn't quote unquote crazy. It wasn't left field. It wasn't unintellectual. It wasn't, you know, unrational. It was a primary experience of, of being human and an experience that in 
most indigenous traditions around the world is commonplace, (laughs) is just, you know, like woven in with the way in which life is meant to be lived and the way in which wisdom is kept alive. And so I was receiving a lot from those teachers that I was reading and interacting with and, and a lot of like affirmation that there's nothing wrong with this path. In fact, this is the path that we who are very far from our indigenous roots have forgotten. So when I graduated from college, I had no intention of moving to New York City. That was not something I wanted to do. (laughs) But my partner at the time really wanted to move there. And because I grew up in this sort of like area between Philadelphia and New York, and then I went to school, you know, north of New York City, a lot of our friends moved to the city. And I thought, you know what, I'll give it a try. Like, I'll give it a try. But I, but my my one condition was like, I need to find a job where I can work with plants, though. That's like essential for me. I love the office plant <laughs> job. It's so good. Yes. <laughs> so I watered office plants in Times Square and, you know, downtown Manhattan and, yeah, the financial district. And it was definitely kind of a wild experience. But I learned a lot about indoor <laughs> plants. And yeah, I had my little postage stamp of a backyard in Brooklyn. And I put in my first garden there, which was like such a funny experience looking back because I had no idea what I was doing, but I was so excited about it. And it was a really formative time in my life. I only lived there for a couple of years, but it really showed me that no matter where you are in the world, no matter where you live, there is nature. There are beings of the more than human world. There is a way to connect to the earth, to the soil, to the dirt, to the trees, to the green and growing beings. And it's like, in some ways, my love of plants was kind of seeded when I was in the Hudson Valley, but it came into flowering when I lived in New York City. You know, I love that I have that that experience now because I work with a lot of people who don't live in pristine, wild environments. They live in the suburbs. They live in the cities. They they live in, in places where there's buildings and there's concrete and there's roads. And yet I know there's a way to continue to connect in those spaces. And not only is there a way, what I found is that the plants in those spaces are so excited to work with you because you really have the ability to make a huge difference, you know, if you are you know, planting a garden, if you are planting native species, you know, if you are working with plants in that way, it's like they just really adore the the attention, the love and the support. So you can make a huge impact when you live in urban spaces as well. I love hearing you say that. I think that's just such an important thing for people that are listening out there to understand, because we were just discussing in another interview how you know, there's this pervasive yearning out there to to reconnect and to rediscover our, you know, inherent place in the natural world. And people might think, oh, but I can't because I live in the city or I live in the suburbs and I, I need to buy land. I need to move way out. I need to become a farmer and all these things. But, you know, which is all very wonderful, but not not everyone is going to do that or can do that. And just to hear you say that no matter where you live, there is nature. There is a way to connect. I just think that's really wonderful for people to hear and to absorb and to realize you know, right where they are, they can begin to seek this reconnection in some way. And you are here to help people do that. And that leads us, I guess, into your book, the writing of your book, Mirrors in the Earth. Tell us about that. Yeah, I started writing this book like 10 years fully before it came out. 
And I knew I wanted to write a book. I've always loved writing. It's always been a huge part of just who I am, how I process things, how I like to express myself. And so I always knew that I wanted to write books. And I felt this book, I often describe it like waking up to a cat sleeping on your chest. You know, it's just like this insistence, like there was this book that wanted to come through, but I I didn't really understand the overarching thesis. Like I started collecting these stories of these moments that I had in nature where I was being shown something about my own self in a a lesson or a parable that came in with so much like forgiveness and love and compassion and understanding. And it was, you know, these experiences were changing my life and they were incredible experiences and I was writing them down, but I didn't understand like, what is the overarching theme of this book? And I think, I think there's two ways to go about writing books. I think the first way is to have an idea of what you want to write and you have the outline and you know, the general thesis and you sort of bang out the outline and then you can start writing the book. And then there's this other way of writing a book, which is the longer way of writing a book, which is knowing that there's a book and collecting material for it being like, I don't understand, like, how is this all fitting together? So I took the long, the scenic route. But really what I say is it took me that long to write the book because it took me that long to realize what it was the earth was asking me to write. And the thread that connected all these different stories of of self-realization was this thread of learning self-compassion. And this is definitely something that I have struggled with in my life, just holding deep compassion for oneself. I think it begins with, you know, really seeing who you are, recognizing that, and then learning how to appreciate the truth of who you are. And then, you know, from there, we really move into this place of being able to hold compassion for ourselves. And when we hold compassion for ourselves, what I found is that's when we can give our gifts to the world. Like we cannot give our gifts to the world if we are in a constant loop and state of self-judgment. And so in this way of thinking and and in my belief system, the earth is a sentient animate being. This is not something I just created. You know, this is a, a foundational belief to indigenous cultures around the world. And as a sentient animate being, the earth is deeply invested in us learning self-compassion because we do have these gifts to bring because we're supposed to be functioning as a part of the ecosystems that we live in to create more abundance, more diversity and healing. Humans do have the ability to do this. I know that there's this common story that we are just very, a very destructive species, but the reality is that we're just, we're powerful, we're creative and we're sensitive. And those three things in combination, if you like throw the spice of trauma in there, (laughs) it can look gnarly, right? Like we can create a lot of havoc in the systems that we're in. And self-judgment, from my experience, it's very interwoven with trauma, you know, whether it's your own personal trauma or it's just the trauma that we've experienced in our culture, we've experienced as a species. And so the earth wants to help us release these thoughts of self-judgment or these loops of self-judgment because self-compassion is how we then are able to access these gifts of innovation and and creativity and inspiration that we're meant to bring as humans to help innovate and to help the earth step into this next phase of evolution. So tell us, is Mirrors of the Earth, are they essays? Is it a story? Is it a memoir? Tell us a little bit about that. I would say it's all three of those things. It is a series of stories. Each story is a standalone, but it also works as an arc, sort of bringing you to this conclusion at the end of really seeing one's gifts and embracing oneself. When I first wrote the book, I wrote an entire version of the book where my story wasn't in it at all. And I 
shared it with my writing buddy and she read it and was like, Asia, this is great, but where's your story? <laughs> I was like, I don't want to put it in there. And she was like, you know, I think that this would land a lot better for people if your story was in there. It's interesting because if you read the book now, you would never know that my story hadn't been in there originally because it's so interwoven that it would, I would consider it part memoir at this point. And, you know, the thing is, she's totally right. We've even found through research that the thing that helps information land the most is story. And this is why, you know, oral cultures, you know, everything that was taught was embedded in story because we just tend to hold on to those details better. And so, you know, it's like I could tell the story of this moment of me looking into the mirror of the earth and having this realization, seeing myself or my struggles like reflected in the metaphors of the living world, which is a lot of what the book's about. It's looking at different plants, ecologies, different processes in the natural world and understanding how that reflects back to us, like the naturalness of our own journeys and the processes that we move through. I could describe those processes, but it's not going to land in the same way without the story that surrounded it, which was my own story. And so that is a big part of the book. Let me tell you about what it's like to drift to sleep on a 100% natural wool pillow sourced from regenerative farms wrapped in a lovingly handmade organic cotton pillowcase. Oh wait, I can't. I think it's just something you're going to have to try for yourself. Holy Lamb Organics is proud to carry on a centuries-old tradition of making beautiful textile products by hand. Combining heritage methods with pristine natural and organic materials and sustainable business practices, they bring a dedication to healthy living and the environment. Everything Holy Lamb does reflects their devotion to the planet and its inhabitants. From their supply chain to their manufacturing processes to their facilities management, nothing happens without considering the environmental impact. Most importantly, they're also dedicated to fair labor practices, secure working conditions, diversity, and inclusion. From the farm to the mill to their partner manufacturers, everyone shares the same high ideals of a safe, respectful workplace and environmentally conscious methods. Making good products enables them to do good work. Every time we order something from Holy Lamb Organics, we're proud to support a small town made in America company. You can find Holy Lamb Organics in the Lady Farmer Marketplace. For additional marketplace discounts, you can join the Almanac, our member-supported community platform. Find Holy Lamb Organics products including pillows, sheets, natural wool comforters, and more in the bedding section of the Lady Farmer Marketplace at www.ladyfarmer.com. I want to talk a bit about empaths and sensitives. You have a statement on your website that says we are at a turning point in this world and empaths and sensitives are here to help midwife that change, which is a beautiful sentiment. So can you tell us a little bit about what that is and what you mean by that statement? So I identify as an empath and as a highly sensitive person. And it's something I've always known about myself ever since I was little that I was sensitive. It was kind of something that was talked about in my family a lot (laughs) and sort of brought to the forefront. What I didn't know until I was an adult is that this is actually a, a literal term, highly sensitive person. And it was coined by a psychologist named Dr. Elaine Aaron. And it is a nervous system trait that exists in about 15% of the population. And what it basically means is that you have a nervous system that is more sensitive to stimuli so and more sensitive to sensory input. So 
bright lights are going to seem brighter. Loud sounds are going to seem louder. You know, social situations for that for one person might feel fun, might feel overwhelming for you because there's literally so much sensory input that you're processing. And this is the blessing and the curse of being a highly sensitive person is that you are literally taking in more sensory detail about your environment than you would if you didn't have a sensitive nervous system. So you are noticing things that other folks may not notice, but it takes a lot to then process all that sensory information. And so, you know, there's a lot of different ways in which high sensitivity can manifest. So for example, folks on the spectrum are highly sensitive. Often I would say high sensitivity is a form of like neurodiversity. So a a lot of people who are neurodivergent are also highly sensitive as well. The realities of being a highly sensitive person is that you're much more prone to overwhelm because you're processing so much sensory input at one time, but it also means that you're very attuned to the subtle realm. So a lot of highly sensitive people that I know are healers, they're artists, they're creatives because they're kind of, they have this ability to tune into what is the actual subtle shade that's in that rose petal or like, what is the exact word to describe this very subtle feeling I'm having right now, you know, as I'm looking at the sunset. And so it's beautiful in that way to be a highly sensitive person, but it's also, it's complex and it's its own state of being in the world and it needs tending and it needs care. And I would say that one variety of a highly sensitive person is an empath. And, you know, empaths tend to have a system, have a nervous system that very easily touches and picks up on and enmeshes with other nervous systems. So, you know, that normally looks like really empathizing with and feeling the feelings of other human beings. But, you know, some empaths feel like they're earth empaths or like they're animal empaths, like they really feel what that animal is going through. And so, you know, I have found through my years of work that this is really who I am serving with a lot of what I create is empaths and highly sensitive people. And I do very much believe that this section of the population is has a very special gift to give to the world. And I'm passionate about expressing this because a lot of empaths and highly sensitive people were told different stories about themselves when they were young. So sometimes high sensitivity and empathy can look like shutdown. It can look like not performing well on tests. It can look like quote unquote shyness, like not having the same kind of social skills that maybe your peers do. We live in a system that's not functional for most people in the way that like our human psyches and bodies are meant to work. And highly sensitive people are often the canaries in the coal mine for that. Like they'll be the first ones to be like, this doesn't work for me. You know, whether it's food that has been stripped of its nutrients. Okay. Now all of a sudden we're starting to develop allergies to this, you know, or it's school systems where you have to sit all day long. Okay. I cannot pay attention. I'm not able to perform on these tests. So I'm passionate about this phrase or this concept of putting out this awareness that highly sensitive people are here to help midwife this great change in the world, because many of us were telegraphed at a young age that there was something deficient about us because we were not able to perform really in X, Y, or Z kind of ways. But the reality is when you are a highly sensitive person, you have the ability to tune into the changes that need to happen. You literally are experiencing them inside of your body. And what I have found through my work is that highly sensitive people are really adept at 
these fields of nature communication, of alternative healing, of developing new systems that help us to actually be in communication with the living world and the harmony that wants to be created. So your sensitivity is a gift, even when it can sometimes feel challenging to navigate. That sensitivity is is the very quality that we need moving ahead in this world. You know, I think a lot when we look around at a lot of the devastation that has been created, it's been created from this narcissistic pathos, right? And this is not to say narcissists have created devastation in the world, because I think this is more, it's a way that human beings, I think, will deal with trauma is by going into a narcissistic pathos. And that pathos has created a lot of harm in the world. And like the antidote to our narcissism is empathy, right? It's it's this exactly the qualities that empaths and highly sensitives hold. And so you in your sensitivity and in your empathy are here to help this great turning and this great healing as we heal from the narcissistic wounds that pervade a lot of human culture, but especially, you know, colonial industrial human culture, as we heal from that and step into this next era of evolution on this planet. So is your experience as a child as a sensitive person woven into your book in that way? Is that is that the part of your story that you wove back in? And can you give us an example of that? How did you weave in your story as a, as a sensitive child into mirrors in the earth? Yeah, so much of the book is about that, is about learning what it means to be sensitive and how to embrace that sensitivity. So yeah, there's a lot of different stories in the book about that. But I for sure, like one of the first chapters in the book, which you know just feels like on topic for this podcast, but one of the first chapters in the book is about gardens and boundaries and how gardens really teach us that it's okay to have boundaries. And in fact, it's important. And if you don't hold a boundary in a garden, you no longer have a garden. <laughs> there are some ways in which we can create like regenerative gardens or forest gardens where eventually they take care of themselves. But when you're establishing something, it's like you need to be willing to hold boundaries. And, you know, I talk in the book about how I was telegraphed from a young age that, you know, part of my purpose, right, was to in some ways, be boundaryless. You know, that part of my purpose was to to be that person who showed up for people no matter what, to be the the sounding board, to be the the absorber of whatever hardship that person was going through. So this played out in my friendships, this played out in my relationships over and over again. You know, I felt like if I were to erect a boundary, that that would somehow be like betraying this other person. And yet the reality is, that it's only when we learn how to set boundaries that we actually can like understand ourselves. Because if we're constantly flowing out in that way, then we have trouble understanding what's me and what's not me. And I think I, I, because a lot of sensitives and empaths are very open, you know, and I was definitely this way as a child, I was very open and I sort of dealt with it often by being quieter in school, you know, by sort of stepping back and observing. And, you know, in, in some ways, like, because of that, not really being recognized for the things that I was capable of, uh, because I sort of withdrew in some ways like that. And so when we learn how to hold these boundaries, it's not about keeping something out, it's about keeping ourselves in. And this is how we start to understand who we are and start to see that it's actually natural to hold boundaries. Boundaries 
is like the way the world works. It's like how nature thrives, right? Like, and boundaries are beautiful. Boundaries are everywhere. You know, like boundaries are in like the howl of a wolf, you know, boundaries are, are in the, the stream, you know, running down the mountain and creating different ecosystems. And so that really helped me as someone transitioning from a childhood and a teenage years where I felt like my boundarylessness was a something I couldn't help and be something that was required of me to understand that, oh, no, actually, the earth is asking me to do something very different. That's so beautiful that you discovered the metaphors to express that and to understand it for yourself and then communicate it to other people. Yeah, the way they put that is really beautiful in a way I haven't quite heard anyone explain boundaries before. So thank you for that. I have a quick question kind of out of left field about that. You have such a prolific presence on Instagram, at least as I think where I've seen you. You have all these amazing videos and you just do such a good job of sharing yourself and your work. And for me specifically, social media is a place where I have a really hard time with boundaries. And so I'm wondering if and how that shows up for you at all. Oh, definitely. I think it's up for all of us. You know, it's just the reality. It's the name of the game. And it's not our fault, you know, because it's like these apps were designed to extract one thing from us. And that's our attention. I still engage in these spaces because it's still an amazing way to connect with people. And I definitely like find out about like, you know, new writers and new creators and, you know, new products this way. Like, so I loved it for discovering new people and new things and new artists too. Oh, I think it's just as life-giving as it is life-sucking. Like I think that's, and that's why it's so tricky, but I do think that we just, we don't know how to use boundaries with it yet. I mean, we might be learning, but. It's also new. And that's something I have to remind myself of. It's like when I started my business, social media wasn't a thing. Like there was Facebook, but like I think it had only had very recently opened up to people like outside of college students. <laughs> um, so it was a very different experience. And it's been amazing for what it can do for solo entrepreneurs. Like it's just amazing that you can now have these jobs that literally didn't exist 15 years ago. And it's sort of like the wild, wild west of social media because it's like there are no guardrails. Like we don't know really what we're doing. Like we're figuring it out and the algorithms are changing all the time. So I do think it's really important to have good boundaries and that's going to look different for everyone. But for me, there's definitely like two ways that that shows up. One is a time boundary. So I have a timer set on my phone and I'm only allowed to be on social media for half an hour every day. And so it'll cut me off at half an hour. So that's one of my boundaries. Do you ever override it or you like stick to it? Oh, sometimes. But I try to justify it. I'm like, okay, but I'm messaging this person back and it's work related, you know, but, you know, normally it's like the pressure of that's enough for me to be like, okay, enough. You know, it's like, especially if it catches me in the middle scrolling, I'm like, okay, that's we don't need to keep doing that. So there's that boundary. And then there's the boundary of how you're going to show up with your energy in that space. So and this will be different for everyone. But it's like, do you respond to comments? Do you respond to every comment? Do you only respond to certain comments, you know, that are maybe asking a logistical question about something that you're offering or, you know, how to download the podcast or whatever it is? You know, do you tend that inbox? Because if you have a business account on Instagram, there's literally three different inboxes that messages will get fed into. And you're like, okay, well, you know, you start adding these up. It's like the inboxes for your personal email, your work email, Instagram inboxes, Facebook inboxes, you know, comments and all these things. And so, You have to decide, like, where am I going to show up and where am I not going to show up? And what I have found to be really fascinating about this is I've witnessed my own evolution with it 
of in the beginning feeling like it was my responsibility to respond to everybody's comment, like that that was what my gift was to show up and reflect people back to themselves and affirm people. And that is very much a gift and it's a gift this world needs. But as I've gone deeper into my work, I'm realizing if I do that for every comment, that's all I will do every day, all day long, (laughs) which is that's some people's work and it's beautiful, but that's not what I'm being called to do. There are other things that I'm being called to create in this world. And so I've had to set boundaries with that. If you know, I only respond to a couple comments a day. Sometimes I don't respond to any comments if I'm in the middle of working on a creative project that day. And so I think those are the two areas for anyone to set boundaries with, with social media. And for some people, what this also looks like is policing their comments. And I don't like that word policing, but like really having it be like, here are the kind of comments that I welcome in this space. And here are the kind of comments where there's just not space for this. And that's okay to have those kind of boundaries. Like this is your space that you're creating. It's not a public forum. It's a space that you're creating. So if, you know, someone comes out of left field with something that you feel like is draining energy from the space, it's okay for you to delete that comment because this is your space that you're creating, not only for yourself, but for other people to come and feel nourished. That's super helpful. Thank you. Yes. And it's reminding me so much of the going back to the boundaries in the garden thing, how you said, responding to comments and that's all I do all day. It reminds me of some of the plants in the garden that if if you just let them go and you think, okay, I'm not going to create a boundary with this one plant. That might be the only thing that ends up in your garden next year because you've allowed it to take over. So the metaphors apply so beautifully. (laughs) The book is a wonderful adventure in self-discovery and nature and the metaphors implicit in each. Thank you. I wanted to touch a little bit on where you live, the Western North Carolina area. I grew up near there. When I grew up, Asheville and and the surrounding towns environment was just a little place and it was beautiful and people went there, you know, to be in the mountains and so forth. But since that time, uh, that area has almost grown sort of a mystique around it. And it's also a place where a lot of treat centers and spiritual centers and a lot of kind of seekers and people interested in alternative ways of life sort of have found themselves in this area. And I'm wondering if you have anything to say about what is it about that? Does it have something to do with the geography of it? Does it have something to do with its its past, the people that were there, their energy is still in this place? Just anything you want to say about that? I do think that there's a very special magic in these mountains. Just looking at the the history of these mountains, like the deep time history of these mountains, for example, you know, these mountains back when the all the continents were a supercontinent named Pangea, these mountains were at the center of the one continent of the earth. So this used to be the center of the earth <laughs> and the, what we now know as of, of the Appalachian Mountains. And at one point, these mountains were higher than the Himalayas. So they have a very profound, deep ecological history. And they actually have several iterations of being pushed up and eroding down and pushed up and eroding down. And if you see them now, they're very like gentle, curving, green, maternal feeling to them. And it's because they're so very old. So these are some of the oldest mountains in the entire world. The French Broad River that runs through these mountains, I think it's the third oldest river in the world. So there's there's that deep history 
Then there's also the spectacular ecological diversity of this place, which is a magic unto itself. So in the last ice age, the ice caps of the north reached as far down south as these mountains. But these mountains kind of acted like a barrier. And so what happened because the ice crept so slowly is a lot of plant species that existed north of here migrated down to the southern Appalachians and then lived here in like a nursery basically, until the ice caps receded. And so it was from the nursery of these mountains that a lot of the northern part of the country, especially following the spine of the Appalachian Mountains up north, that a lot of those plants were reseeded in those lands, was from the nursery here in, in southern Appalachia. So I think there is a deep magic to the, the history, the geological history of this place. So that is a big part of, you know, why people are drawn here and what these mountains hold. And, you know, my experience of having lived here now for, I think it's been 12 or 13 years, is that these mountains will often call people here. And then sometimes they tell them it's time to go. <laughs> and sometimes they call people here and they're like, you're meant to be here. But I noticed this iteration of a lot of people moving here, going through a really big healing phase in their life. And then sometimes then moving on. Not always, but I do think that it has earned its reputation as this place of like kind of a vortex or a portal or a healing spot. I also would be remiss if I didn't mention that this is a very mineral rich place as well. So we have like an incredible diversity of stones and minerals here. You know, Silicon Valley was basically like built on the quartz that was mined in these mountains and sent to Silicon Valley. The mica industry related relied very much so on the mica from this place and even previous to now, European settlement of this area, mica was a, a major stone of commerce and trade and ceremony that ended up all over the continent. And so I think all people who've walked into these mountains for all of time have felt that there's like a special deep embodied magic here that it's sort of hard to resist. How would you explain the last, I would say, 20 to 30 years of increased fascination with the area and almost like a surge, a surge of people going there. Is it because we're in a place where we're in such desperate need of healing in so many ways in the world? Or is it just because it's, I don't know, what do you have to say about that? I think that's definitely part of it. I'd like to believe that the mountains like has their own say in it, that they're calling certain people in for certain reasons at this time. I also think there's like a logistical component to it. You know, like I used to live out farther out in Madison County and the place where I live, it didn't have paved roads until the 60s. And so there's that logistical component too of it literally becoming easier to live here. I mean, you're literally up in the mountains here and before we had this infrastructure, it was like a very specific decision <laughs> to come up here. And so I think travel has been made easier. I think it's also with the rise of the internet, it's become easier to make a living. And I've noticed that you know, even since the start of the pandemic, there's been a huge influx of folks who have moved here because so many people's jobs are virtual. So I think that there's that. And I think a lot of people are really craving like deep primary connection with the earth again. And there is something about these mountains or this place that it feels like it's like an origin place in some ways. Like you come here and you connect into the deep time of our planet and you can feel held. Oh, I love that. 
the deep time. And isn't Mount Mitchell that's right there, is that the tallest mountain in North America? It's the tallest mountain east of the Mississippi. Yeah. So the Cherokee call it Atacula and Mount Mitchell or Atacula is, yeah, the tallest peak um, anywhere on the eastern seaboard east of the Mississippi. So that's pretty cool. Very good. Thank you. That's a wonderful overview of the area. Yeah, I didn't know that they were the center of the Pangea. That's so cool. Oh, yes. Makes a lot of sense. Asia, what does slow living mean to you? Mm, Slow living is something I aspire to. (laughs) It is, to me, it's less of a goal in the distance. And it's more of a mantra to remind myself of the way in which my system wants to operate in this world. So sometimes I think in an ideal world, I'm like, oh, you know, slow living is me harvesting my own food from the garden and the wilds and having lots of time to prepare it and, you know, watching the sun go down without any technology and spending the night by a candle. It's like, that's the dream, right? In some ways. But I think what slow living really is, is no matter what you're doing, being able to slow down, being able to be present with what it is that you're doing, knowing that it's enough checking yourself or just being aware when you have that sense of urgency come up and whatever it is that you're doing. I mean, it all there's so many things we develop urgency around like, oh, I have to post that thing on Instagram right now. You know, and you just kind of catch yourself. You're like, okay, but is this actually urgent? You know? So to me, slow living is about bringing your body into alignment with the pace of the world around you. And by the world around you, I mean the more than human world. And so sometimes that can look faster, like summertime can be a fast time in the living world. But what it is about is about for me realizing what the natural rhythms are of that my body wants to settle into in that moment and being willing to bring awareness to the moments when I am pushing up and out of myself when I'm letting urgency kind of dictate the schedule for the day. And even just being willing to slow down in my awareness of that moment and accept where I'm at, accept the fact that I got caught in an urgency loop again and being present in that way is to me where the attainability of slow living lives. And it's really where the healing lives too, because I think there's a way in which Slow living can just become another thing that we're trying to strive for and attain. It's less of a way the way your life looks or a goal. And it's more of like how you can be present with your life. That's so great to point out because you're totally right. It can just turn into something that we're not doing good enough. There's a lot of those in the world, aren't there? (laughs) So speaking of healing, I wanted to ask you this. In your work as an herbalist and a healer, in a world that is broken in so many ways, and we as humans are broken in so many ways, where do you see the greatest needs for healing? What what do you see coming up in your work that needs addressing? Well, you know, I probably would have said in the past, what I used to say is, you know, our connection with nature, like that's what needs to be healed. But that can't happen. Like our connection with nature cannot be healed. Our connection with our kin in the more than human world, our connection with other humans, our culture, like none of those things can be healed unless we're willing to heal ourselves. And so that's really what my work is about. It's about empowering people to recognize that this journey of self-healing, of self-acceptance and self-compassion, it's not selfish. It's not like a side pursuit in your mission to help the world. It is essential. It's 
central to this journey. Because if we lived in a world where everyone accepted themselves and loved themselves without condition, so many of the problems that we see in this world would evaporate. So much of the extractive mindsets that we are in that have gotten us into this broken place in this world, we are in those extractive mindsets out of a feeling of lack. I need more prestige. I need more money. I need more power. And those are all ways in which we're trying to fill this hole. You know, that hole is the ways in which we've been disconnected from really seeing, loving and accepting our own selves. And it's like anything in terms of healing and wholeness becomes possible when we become whole again in our recognition of and acceptance of our own selves. Thank you very much. That was so articulate. (laughs) Thank you. What does the good dirt mean to you? Mm, I love this. And I and I love, yeah, just like that concept of good dirt, because I definitely grew up in an era where dirty equaled bad, you know, like you're dirty. And I have to catch myself a lot now with my daughter, who's one and a half. I try not to say that she's dirty unless she literally has like soil on her. And then I'll be like, you have soil on you, you know, because dirt is like literally the building block of life. It is how we have nourishing food. It is you know, how we live on this planet. It is the collective, you know, wealth of this earth. I mean, like literally our topsoil is, you know, formed over thousands of years of life, of plant matter, of fungi, of mycelial networks, you know, of bodies of this earth that have given themselves to create this thing that we call dirt. And so to me, like the good dirt on a very metaphorical level, it's like valuing everything in your life and every part of you that has had to die, that has given itself up, that has gone into the mixer, that has gone into the cauldron, the time that you've taken to become who you are, all of that is the good dirt. It's all compost for the new beginning. Like nothing was ever in vain. Nothing was ever for naught. It was all part of creating this good dirt. And the good dirt is where the new beginning can happen. I love that so much. And as another metaphor, we're composting our food. It always gives me such a good feeling that nothing's wasted. It's all the beginning for something new. And I just I love that so much. It's such an encouraging, hopeful feeling to have, like literally like just in your body. It's just uplifting. So thank you again for articulating that so beautifully. Well, this has been so lovely. And as we wrap up, we always like to ask, what is it that you most want people to understand about the work that you're doing? I think the thing I would most want people to understand is that the work that I'm doing and the work that they are doing by showing up in these classes or or undertaking this personal work, that it's not just personal, that it's not just about your healing, that it is about the healing of the whole and that, you know, you are really unlocking the potential of the earth through doing this. And my sort of, (laughs) I have had this secret way of describing my work for a while, which is that in some ways I am, I feel like my work is, it's helping to seed a very old, but also new way of thinking, a new consciousness in the collective so that when the big change comes, because it's going to come, we have a way to start again. And I live in a place where there's a lot of people you know, who might be called preppers. I have a lot of friends who um, are in the earth skills world who are learning 
things, who know how to do things like tan hides and make baskets and, you know, make cordage and, you know, create bows and arrows. And so I have this background of being around a lot of people who literally know these physical skills that are sometimes called primitive skills, but they're not primitive at all. They're very complex, but these physical earth-based skills that are going to be there for us when we see the changes happen, you know, when our systems in this world, like they, we know they can't function the way that they're functioning right now forever in perpetuity. So a lot of my friends are like, you know, we have these skills to help teach the next generation so that we have these skills when the time comes. And I think a lot of my work is about like reseeding a kind of consciousness, the consciousness that we're going to need to really plant a new world when that time comes. So to know that the work that you do of embracing yourself, of learning how to see the animacy of the world again, how to communicate with the living world and become a harmonious part of the greater whole, that that's not only work for yourself and it's not only for the healing of the present world, it's work for the world to come and it's work for the people to come and the people who are moving back towards being in a relationship with the earth that is one of harmony and co-creation. Seeding a new way in the good dirt. Yes. Oh, thank you so much. You know, I first heard about you. I'm in a dream group and someone mentioned your book in the dream group. And I said, oh, this is something I need to get my hands on right away. And so I did. I haven't read all the book. It's in process, but it's really beautiful. And it's just, it's something I want to read slowly and absorb it because there's so much to it. And talking to you is the same way. There's so much depth and reflection in what you say. So thank you so much for spending the time with us today to talk about all these things. It's, it's just been very wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah. And the floor is open if there's anything else you feel like we didn't touch on or you want to say, or maybe definitely yeah. say how people can engage with you, where people can find you and such. But yeah, whatever, anything else. Yeah. Well, it's been an honor to be here with both of you. Thank you for these amazing questions and just this really beautiful community that you've gathered here. It's, yeah, it's, it's like an ecosystem that I get to step into and experience with awe and wonder. So thank you for that. And yeah, I would love to continue to connect with anyone who, you know, listen to this podcast and is resonating with what I'm saying. And so you can find me over on my website, asiasuler.com and also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. I am active on all of those channels. And yeah, I just wanted to mention if people are feeling really like moved around this concept of like the gifts that you have to bring to this world. I have this free quiz on my website called Your Earth Healing Archetype. And it really helps you understand there's five archetypes that I've seen over and over again in the past decade of, of working with people in private practice, but also, you know, in teaching capacities around the world that I see these five different archetypes that come up over and over again of how people are actually meant to give their gifts to the world, what those gifts look like, what the delivery systems look like. And so it's a free quiz that then leads to a set of free classes about each one of the archetypes. So if you're curious about that, then you can find out what your archetype might be, see if it resonates and see if there might be some good information for you in that class of really what it looks like. And it's been amazing because we've had like 100,000 people take this quiz. And it's just incredible to see people have this realization of really being able to see themselves and their capacity for the first time through this metaphor of this archetype that exists in the natural world. So yes, I'd love to, to connect with you there if that resonates. Amazing. Oh my gosh. Yes. Well, thank you, Asia. This has been so awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you.
tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's WeAreLadyFarmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.